Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is Empirical Labs founder and inventor of the distressor, Dave Durr. First of all, radio is evolving, and with that evolution comes some changing music radio formats. That's actually a good thing because I think a lot of us feel that radio is kind of stagnant, to use one word. There's probably lots of other ones that you can use, but that's one. And in fact, what we're finding is that radio is changing right before our eyes, and that's probably a good thing. The latest Nielsen survey found that adult contemporary radio is hot. As a matter of fact, it's starting to beat out pop CHR. CHR is contemporary hits radio, and this has been the largest pop format that's been around for a long, long time. Pop CHR listening levels are their lowest since 2011. They're down about 15%. Now, this, of course, skews pretty young, while adult contemporary skews a lot older. I shouldn't say a lot older, but older. Now, what's even more interesting is we're finding that Outside of the top 50 markets, the most important radio format is country. Country is just killing everywhere except for the top 50 markets. So if you go to every state, basically, wherever their largest market is, country may not be in the top five, but what you'll find is if you go outside of those markets, country is just killing everywhere. So country is the favorite format of the United States right now. That being said, classic rock is still doing very well, and it's the top rock format. But we're finding that alternative, or sometimes they call it alternative rock, is right behind. And basically what that is is new rock music that's just been released, plus some artists from the 1990s and 2000s. So what we're seeing, of course, is alternative is gaining audience while pop CHR is declining. I think that's showing a little bit about the type of music that's out there right now. A lot of people feel it's kind of repetitive and there's nothing really new and distinctive. And as a result, I think there's people that are kind of fleeing the format. Now, that being said, we're also getting a big evolution in radio listeners as younger listeners actually are listening more, as we've seen in past weeks when we've talked about this, they're listening more online than they are on the radio. Now, if you're a captive listener, meaning that you're in a car or you're at work, that's one thing. But if you have your choice and what to listen to, the younger the age, the more likely they're going to be listening online. And that's why we're seeing, I think, some of this decline in the format. Nonetheless, radio is changing. It always does. It's always a surprise. But right now, I think it's more of a surprise than it has been. And the last survey really has opened up some eyes in the industry. So let's see what happens in the next six months. At the end of the year, we can reevaluate this and see really what's happening. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. Just a heads up that my new book, The Music Business Advice Book, will be available on August 7th. It's comprised of 150 immediately useful tips compiled from the interviews from this podcast. You'll be able to find the book on Amazon and most other online book retailers, as well as a bookstore near you. Now we all buy gear. And many of us buy lots of it, and we may buy it from our local retailer, we may buy it online, we may buy it from a big box music retailer, but I think it's interesting to really look at the figures that Music Trades comes out with and kind of analyze what's actually being sold and who's buying it and where they're buying it from. Well, when we look at the latest figures in Music Trades, we find out that the sales for just about all musical instruments are up. The only ones that are down are those for organs. These are both church organs and home organs. Upright pianos are way down, and grand pianos are kind of steady, but they're not growing, and every other category is, especially accessories and school music and even fretted instruments and amplifiers. Amplifiers haven't been doing well for a few years, but even those are creeping up, so the numbers are a little bit better. Now, where are people buying from? Here are the top 10 retailers. The first is Guitar Center, and that's no surprise. 
They're at $2.3 billion in sales. Number two is Sweetwater. Sweetwater is way behind at $618.3 million. Number three is Sam Ash, and they're way behind Sweetwater at 318. American Music Supply at 306 is number four. Full Compass is number five at 140. And then everyone else is below 100 million in sales. Number six is B&H. Number seven is Washington Music Center. Number eight is J.W. Pepper, the print music warehouse. Number nine is Steinway Hall Retail, somewhat of a surprise. Number 10 is Alto Music. Now, as far as the top online retailers, we're looking at worldwide. Who are these top retailers? Well, surprisingly, it's Music House Thoman in Germany. They're number one. Sweetwater's number two. American Music Supplies, number three. Guitar Center, and this is Guitar Center in all their forms. I think they have like three or four different types of retail sites that they're actually selling from. They're number four. Music Store Professional in Germany is number five. Full Compass, number six. Bax Shop in the Netherlands is number seven. Soundhouse in Japan is number eight. Gear for Music in the UK, number nine. And B&H Photo is number 10. Now, if we look at the total numbers of all this, we find that the online music sales in the United States are larger than the rest of the world combined. Yeah, we sell a lot of gear online. We buy a lot of gear online. And I think that's only going to continue as we go forward. I'm really surprised when people actually buy guitars online because that used to be at least the one part where you wanted to go into the store to find the instrument that actually fitted your style the best. But even that's changing and people don't have any qualms about buying a guitar or a fretted instrument online. Now, one other part in this that's very interesting is Reverb, the online used music gear site just topped $1 billion in sales, $600 million this year alone. So Reverb is really starting to kill it. And we're seeing that eBay, in fact, and the Recycler and Craigslist and all those other sites that used to be really big for used gear are kind of falling by the wayside as Reverb is becoming the go-to site to buy or use gear. The Distressor is one of the few modern pieces of outboard gear that's become a classic and stands in the same league as compressors such as the 1176 and LA-2A when it comes to standard pieces found in studios everywhere today. Dave Durr is the creator of the Distressor, Fatso, and other totally unique hardware outboard devices, and he's my guest on this week's podcast. In the interview, we talk about his life as a professional musician and recording engineer, his time spent working at Eventide, how the distressor went from idea to product, and the whole story behind other Empirical Labs products. We spoke via Skype from his office in New Jersey. Boy, it's a pleasure to talk to you, I have to say. I'm glad we can talk in depth because I've always had a lot of questions for you. So now's a good time here to get to it. Let's start with your background. Are you from Philly by any chance? Philly area. I was originally born in Delaware, ah. but when I was in a group, a band for many years, like all of us, uh, Philly was a main place that we played at, along with Baltimore, Washington, uh, and, and New Jersey, too. Got it. Okay, so you were a player for quite a while, right? Yeah, many, many years. I was actually a music major in college. Um, and then, yeah, played in a, we had a band, Jack of Diamonds, for... Uh, thinking 10 years, something like that, maybe more. Uh, I was around 32 or 33 when we, we kind of went our separate ways and off to do other things. Okay, so how does that take you to Empirical Labs? Uh, that's a good question. Um, first of all, uh, my family is all very technical. I had two engineer brothers. Uh, and of course, you know, they're always doing science and all kinds of little experiments. And I was fascinated, you know, they're over a decade older than I. So when they were in college as engineers, you know, I was the little kid that always wanted to know what the, what this did and what that did. Um, but essentially when the band broke up, uh, I ran into a guy at Radio Shack cause I was always doing little projects and stuff. Um, and he had seen the band. Um, and I 
started just talking to him. I was asking him originally about some ICs and stuff because I was always technically interested. Uh, and, of course, in a band, you have to learn how to fix your guitar cables and yep. re- replace pots. So start talking to this guy, and he goes, well, you know, your band broke up, so what are you doing? And I said, uh, nothing. <laughs> and he said, uh, my company, which is a medical company, is may have room for a technician if you're interested. Um, and he was in Philadelphia, the company. Uh, it was a medical EEG company. Um, so I started working there as a electronic technician. So that was really my first kind of move in away from full-time music to electronics. Um, and then I was lucky. I happened to see an ad from Eventide for a, uh, an engineer. And I said, well, I'm not really an engineer, but I have been reading all these manuals and, um, uh, technical journals. And I had actually taught myself basic AC analysis um, through a Radio Shack book. And so then uh, I sent up a, a little resume that just said, I'm doing this. I was in a band. And I was lucky Richard Factor, the owner of Eventide, had actually seen my band. Uh, and he calls up a friend of his uh, who was in another band, uh, Rob Grenoble, who owned Water Music uh, for many years. And next thing you know, Rob says, oh, you should hire Dave. He'll, he'd probably be good. Uh, because he he knows music and knows instruments and might be able to help out on in a different way than some of the schooled engineers did, um, and I ended up getting a job. So from there it was you know there I was I was in the industry, equipment manufacturing industry. When you were with Eventide, of course Eventide was into digital way before anybody else, and it was a hybrid of analog and digital. What side were you working on? I guess the analog side, right? Yes, um, especially initially. Um, and let, let me, <laughs> one of the funny things that happened to me, I, I was put in with a group of real engineers, like guys with, you know, masters, but more importantly, experience had turned out projects, um, serious projects all their life. And of course, you know, I, I had repaired guitar cables. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but I had started making little projects and stuff, all analog. Um, but being put in with uh, some major guys who are now have their own companies, I'll mention um, Ken Bogdanovich oh. from uh, Sound Toys. Yeah. Uh, Bob Belcher also from Sound Toys. Um, and those, that was the three of us really that I got put in. And the funny story I was going to tell was I felt miserably. Uh, on the first two projects Eventide gave me, um, I really just spun my wheels. And, and I'm sure there was a point where they're kind of looking at me saying, was this a good hire, you know? <laughs> but uh, can be – then I got thrown into uh, the audio uh, division specifically, whereas before I was, uh, I was doing a number of slightly off-center projects. Um, and I, I, I'm not proud to say, but – admit to failing at them you know i literally didn't know where to start on some of them um but when i got put in the audio department uh, alongside uh my friends ken b and, and bob belcher um they were really patient with me uh and they they were my mentors um i took copious notes I wouldn't say i was a quick study but i was a good note taker so um, that got me going with those guys, and they were very patient, like I said, and I just tried to n- not say too much usually and listen a lot, you know. But the H3000 uh-huh. was the product that I was put on to, and there I did the analog section uh, initially. Wow, very cool. Yeah, I, are you kidding? I was so lucky uh, to get that job, and uh, especially lucky to be teamed up with two patient guys because, you know, there's a lot of engineers, they, they don't want to play with someone that, you know, the, no, you use this formula, you know, to do that. And then uh, they would ha- have an attitude. And these guys had no attitude. They were very patient with me. So I was very lucky in many ways. You know, we, we have a similar background because I was always the guy that was fixing cables and making sure the PA worked and all that stuff, too. And I was trained in college as an engineer. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, the only time I ever had an engineering job 
was when I was kind of forced to because my band had broken up and, you know, the, the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. So for six weeks, I worked in a telecommunications company. Same with me, by the way. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Same with me. You know, I, I didn't, wasn't going to go into electronics, but when the, you know, when your, your love kind of says, okay, I'm not paying the rent. Very interesting. I worked in this telecommunications company for six weeks only. And what it was, was basically it was a phone system and it was a high tech phone system for the time. This was, uh, in about 1980 or so. And, um, they put me in a room by myself and along the walls were nothing but schematics. And I would get a broken circuit board that would come in that would have, you know, the problem. And I was supposed to troubleshoot it by looking at the schematics and then just writing out, okay, change this or this. And I would never know if I was right or not because it went out to the text and the text did all that stuff. And the only way I knew that I was wrong was if I saw it come back in again. Okay, I got you. Needless to say, I was not very good at that. And uh, I lasted about six weeks. And then, of course, I got another gig playing. So that was more important. <laughs> I kind of share your background with that where you're thrown in and you go, oh, wait a second. I don't know if I'm prepared for this. Yeah, trial by fire. It was, there was, you know, definitely a lot of moments where I'm like, this might be not, not be where I should be, you know, yeah. or are they going to put up with me? How long can they wait for me to, to come up and do something useful? But again, with uh, Bob and Ken's help, um, you know, and I did know op amps and stuff like that and basic analog circuitry. So, you know, I got to a point where I did uh, did finish a couple analog sections and uh, that that gave me a little bit of respect, um, at least from from me. <laughs> I really respect to myself because I was pretty <laughs> torn up. You know, you, when you, you feel like you can't you fail on your first two projects. Yeah. Um, and you already had the feeling you might be over your head. You know, I had a few sleepless nights, but that's what you do. Yeah. How long were you at Eventide? I believe it was nine years, eight years. Wow. It was from seven years. I think it was seven years because it was from uh, 85 to 92. So seven years. I, I remember now I started in uh, end of eight, 85. So... Did you leave to start Empirical Labs? In a way, yes. Empirical Labs, uh, I had a recording studio that was starting to make money. and You know, okay money. And that was owned by a company I had started, Empirical Labs. So technically, yes, it was to leave Empirical, uh, it was to start Empirical Labs. But in reality, it was to work in my own studio owned by Empirical Labs. Got it. And of course, the whole time, I'm ideas, I'm starting to think... You know, I'd like to do this product, like to do that product, so. Well, you had the background. You knew how to do it then. Yeah, at that point, I actually had some experience working alongside some, you know, king engineers. Let's talk about the distressor, and I'm sure this has been asked so many times of you, so forgive me, because I, I'm sure you've gone through this a lot, but I'm curious, and I know a lot of people listening will probably be the same. What was the impetus for the distressor? And I say this because it's so unique. It's such a different product. You know, many times I've looked at it and I thought, how do you even think about this? So where did it come from? For some reason, I'd always had a fascination with compressors and gates, um, even within the band. Because I remember we would have, a, you know, be in the studio and working on everything. And all of a sudden, the engineer might throw a compressor on the, the drums or something. And I go, what? What's that? What did you do? You know, um, and so that got my fascination with compressors uh, started long before I was a any kind of electronic engineer. And at Eventide, you know, they made a lot of um, they had the Omnipressor, which was a, a fun little device. Um, I didn't work on that or anything, but um, I, I did play with it. And when I had my studio, I had a bunch of new, you know compressor devices with only one or two that I would call character devices. Uh, and that was a Gain Brain 1, um, was definitely to me a, a character device. And then right when I was the last year or two of, at Eventide, I'd saved up some money and I bought uh, an 1176, actually two 1176s, 
I had an API for a while, but that was just borrowed a, a compressor. And I had um, LA2A, which I actually got from Ken B, uh, who was working. He, he had bought it while I'd even tied, and I kind of sc- uh, absconded with it. Um, and those those were like eye opening, you know, as you can imagine. If you're if you're working with uh, say an Alesis compressor or I did have some DBX 160s, which of course were very utilitarian, yeah. but they weren't the kind of thing where you could, uh, they would fundamentally change your sound that much. But when I got the LA-2A, especially 1176 and the Gain Brain 1, I got a Gain Brain 2. Unfortunately, I sold the Gain Brain 1 to get the Gain Brain 2s, which were a totally different beast. Um, uh, I learned after quite a bit of time, but those fundamentally changed the quality of what I was working on in the studio. And I got to work alongside a Phil Ramone's engineer before he was Phil Ramone's engineer, John Patterson, who was introduced to me through a friend at the medical company of all places, mm. um, came and, and was looking for a studio to do, uh, you know, uh, what would off the line work, you know, basically, cause he was working in big studios in the city. Um, and when John came out, he really showed me the magic of like the LA two A on vocals, um, the eleven seventy sixes, which were really old black faces. Um, so there was the start of why do these change make me sound like a better engineer and make my uh, my attempts at a record sound more like a record. Um, so with that in mind, I started you know, doing a little research, uh, playing with little circuits and stuff. And that was the gist of it. I, I, I was, I'm never a clone person. I, I have no desire to just clone something. And even when we did our arouser, yeah, I, I had no interest in just doing the distressor. So, uh, even though the distressor was my own product, I, it was, it, why do something you've already done when you've learned stuff? So, um, I think that was the start. The, the, I had the fascination for the compressors. And then when I got these two compressors, two or three compressors that changed my sound, uh, I was on a mission. And that was when I started playing breadboarding and testing circuits and stuff. You know, very early was I loved fat compressors. Uh, that was a no-brainer. Uh, the Gain Brain 1 was a fat compressor. Uh, and I really liked that. Again, when I got the Game Brain 2, that, that had become a VCA-type compressor. And the 1176. And at that time, this is, uh, again, um, I got my 1176s. I'm thinking, I should look, but I'm thinking late 80s, before I tied. Uh, and you couldn't get new ones at that time. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I was looking around inside, poking around inside, couldn't get schematics. You know, the internet wasn't, wasn't happening then. Um, so I reverse engineered a lot of it and looked around and very early on, I said, you know what? There's pretty good VCAs out there now. You know, I sees that one volt in is 10 dB more out or whatever. Um, but I said, the sound that I like was these fat, um, from, and, and, the tube stuff too, obviously, but FETs have a very similar quality uh, in their harmonic generation as tubes. So I think that was that sealed it for me. So right off the bat, I said I had the, I knew the gain control was going to be a FET, um, and I've never regretted that decision since. Okay, so you don't want to reverse engineer anything or or, or clone another product and i get that i understand that being said you have similar features and i'm talking about nuke and opto and british mode so you're not exactly cloning something but yet it's the features and the feel which is kind of interesting yeah uh there you're absolutely right um at what point is something a clone or something inspired by something you know and the thing that, that I had learned at Eventide was, you know, a little bit of digital about digital controls, obviously in circuitry. Um, so I'm looking at these old discrete devices, and uh, I want to be able to get the sound. But 
more mostly initially for my own use, I started developing tests. Um, and I started saying, well, you know, I don't have an optocoupler in here, but I have an optocoupler, uh, op optocoupler compressor that I really like, and I can see what that is doing, like time constant-wise, uh, with uh, harmonics, etc. cetera. Um, and so I'm looking around, I'm going, well, gosh, with this new IC or newer IC, I can possibly switch in this circuit that'll give a new release shape, add another time constant to what I have now, and get an opto-type response. So using newer technology, it kind of opened up what I could do. Um, and I said, again, I don't want to build an LA2. I don't want to build an 1176. But now with these, I'm looking at these new tools and, and new technology. And it's honestly, it wasn't even that new at that point. Some of the ICs that I used to pull that off are probably already 10 years old, maybe even more. But uh, no one had really uh, used them to enable you to get certain sounds. And again, because of LA2A and 1176, you really couldn't get at that time. Um, I said, gosh, if I could get that out of my own box or, or get the vibe, you know, out of my own box and have this versatility. Uh, and then I was like, that's what I'm going to do. You know, I'm going to add uh, some of this modern technology in here to be able to switch stuff around. And literally, it's I put different compressors in one box. Um, and I think that that kind of is what you were saying, where we got this versatility and you got the vibe. Um, and it really, um, I think, a thousand, two thousand people could have done it, but uh, it's making the commitment. And again, it was two or three, four years before it went from the concept and breadboard to actually going out the door. Wow! So it was, it, you know, it's it's just like anything. You got to make the commitment and get started. And from there, you know, stuff can happen. How'd you come up with the knobs? Because the knobs are so unique looking and they've become the icon of the company. Yeah, exactly. It's funny. I'm looking for a knob here. I was going to hold one up. Um, that's a really good question. Um, because one thing that I always liked about the old devices, there was these great big knobs that the outside of the skirt, like if you move it a sixteenth of an inch, you can get back to that. You know, the the actually circumference uh, was so big, and I so immediately I said, you know, that's such a good feel. You know, you don't have this touchy little knob um, that you're never going to be able to write down where you were. Um, so I got a couple big knobs, and then the next thing, of course, was I started using this thing on sessions very nervously because people are paying me. And I'm kind of like, would you mind if I tried this <laughs> this thing on your vocal, you know? Um, so when I started doing that, I, I need to recall some stuff immediately. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't have a lot of markings on these knobs. Then the search for the knob started. And this was about 93, I would say, a year after I got out of Eventide. Um, and I went through... Uh, some some of my friends that were coming into the studio remember me going, what do you think about this knob? You know, what do you think about that knob? And anyway, we ended up with a big knob, and I found a company that made a knob that was kind of what I wanted, um, but the colors were different, um, and but they had a million marks, uh, the same marks as we have on there now, but the knob was clear, um, which didn't work for me. So um, I had them customize it to be an all-white knob. Um, and that, you know, that's the waiting period between saying, can you do this for me? And then actually getting it, it was very long. So they said, well, it's going to take us a month or two. And I said, okay, well, can you send me the current knobs, the clear knobs that you have? And they did. And I took a can of white spray paint <laughs> and went, went outside and on a piece of cardboard, spray painted the back white. And I said, yeah, that's a look. You know, uh, you haven't seen any white. You still don't see that many white knobs, yeah. right? So, um, and when I, Gil, our distributor from Wave Distro, had worked at Eventide with me also, um, and he left shortly after I did. Um, when I showed him the knob, he goes, oh, that's really ugly, but really different, <laughs> you know? And uh, that was it. We And it has since... As you say, um, we've 
really tried to make it a symbol of our company um, because they are big and very identifiable. And uh, Bobby, we just got a trademark for that. Excellent. We have a trademark for our knob, meaning it, you, it's ours. Yeah. You know, basically we own that knob, that look. Uh, and of course, there's all kinds of permutations of that trademark. You need to get uh, protected for software and for pictures and stuff. But the, the we spent almost a year uh, basically going through the process of getting it trademarked um, so that, uh, you know, it's our IP, actually. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the it, it was not easy. It wasn't easy. Um, the, you know, a knob's a knob to a lot of people. Yeah, sure, sure. The distressor is so versatile and can be used in so many different ways. I'm sure you've talked to tons of users. Is there one way that people seem to use it more than others, or, or ways, I should say? Is there something that keeps on popping up in a way that people are using it? Um, the answer is yes, there is. Um, initially, when we started demoing it, you know, drums. When you demo at a show, which is it's another story there with Mercenary Audio, but our, our first AES, um, subtlety uh, doesn't sell. So the first thing we do, we did at our first AES was get a really bad sounding drum track, which we still use to this day, and smash the heck out of it. And people, that sold. And people to this day, of course, still, that's one of their main uses is smashing drums, room mics, snares, kicks. Um, so that's one huge use for it. Um, the other common use is the opto is used very often on bass and vocals, vocals more than bass, because again, I spent a long time trying to get the vibe of the LA-2A, which is, as you know, you know, a major compressor for vocals. So those two settings, I would say, pop right out in my mind. But then uh, people soon realize that you can use it invisibly. And, you know, so for tracking, um, we, we gave a lot of people a little ideas in the manual, uh, you know, don't, don't use nuke while you're tracking, <laughs> yeah, right. unless it's a, a room mic or something. But, um, you know, people started realizing you can use it on, uh, a lot of different instruments. And, uh, if I may just deviate a little bit from the subject, um, the, the one we had some sound sources, which really showed the flaws I had made several compressors by this point before the distressor. Probably, I'm guessing six to eight breadboard breadboarded compressors, um, optos, VCAs, all kinds of stuff. And certain sources, uh, and let me mention those. First of all, acoustic guitars are very—they're hard to get that gleam in your face, warm big sound without getting the spiky pick noises and all that crap or without modulating and getting really fuzzy. And bass, bass guitars, really hard on some compressors. Yeah. Um, you know, and you'll find, for instance, one thing, one thing I use DBX-160s for in my studio all the time was bass, um, because uh, David Blackmer, who designed it, had this little circuit in there that adjusted its attack and decay times depending on the source. Um, so with a bass, which was a slow-moving signal, um, it would slow things up, and you wouldn't get nasty modulation distortion, uh, static, stuff like that, because a lot of compressors will get static with a bass, but yep. you, believe it or not, because when you go up with that low frequency, it's, it all of a sudden chops it off. Um, so I used acoustic guitars and bass. The drum, the drum smashing, you don't have to be clean, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so that was really easy, even with the first prototype, which was very dirty. Um, I got that vibe right away on room mics, the, uh, the neat vibe. Um, and again, my engineer who worked for Phil Ramone, a guy named John Patterson, uh, got very excited by that right off the bat. Um, but then we both saw the limitations when I tried to use it on acoustic, got spiky. The attack uh, was actually too fast at first. It was in, I didn't really scale things properly. Um, but by using those different sources, um, I slowly tweaked it over the years. Um, and bass, again, uh, a lot of it was setting the right attack time um, and the right release time. Uh, 
but we also added a little circuit in there that gives a little bit really fast so that the main compressor doesn't have to chomp so hard. Uh, I call it a sponge circuit, which I, I've mentioned before, uh, and it gives a little bit very quickly, and it makes the job for the main compressor easier. Um, and that it allows you with acoustics. Um, I was very happy with the way the stressor came out with acoustics. In fact, I won't mention names, but there's a lot of guys that that's their go-to compressor, especially while tracking. Um, bass was uh, kind of fell in line at the same time, honestly. So it initially, it wasn't that as versatile as I wanted, but uh, you know, you work on things and, and they get better. And uh, over a year, we tweaked and tweaked and tweaked, and um, I think that's where the versatility slowly appeared. Well, speaking of which, you continue to make improvements on it. And now there's a new version, well, new to me anyway, where there's a lot more things. And I'm just wondering, is this coming from you playing with it or are you listening to the market? Both, both. Uh, as an example, uh, originally, um, the original link hmm. did not lock the left, if you had two channels, did not lock the two channels together. In other words, the left side could uh, respond differently from the right side, even though you had the link button on, uh, because we did not link the actual control signal. We linked the audio. So we call that phase link, because if you have drastically out of phase material, the compressor won't turn it down as much. So monocompatibility is good. But right off the bat, within uh, the first year even, complaints. The left side's doing something different than the right side. Um, and so immediately I said, well, let me see what we can do. Um, so we started looking around and found a way to um, join the two gain control signals. And we added a little switch on the front panel um, that let you do that um, even with previous units. In other words, you could update the original unit to have what we call the image link. Um, and so I listened to that. And the other thing, too, we got one of, one of, one of my big influences uh, and has become a very dear friend of mine uh, is the engineer Michael Brower. Mm. And uh, my friend John Patterson uh, knew, knew Michael. I didn't know Michael at the time. This is, again, about 90, probably 96, something like that. Um, and John said, I, can, you, can you put one of these together so I can give it to Michael? Because Michael's a compression fiend. And I said, okay, yeah. Uh, so we had um, our, I only had like three employees, two employees or something. Uh, I had him make, make one, uh, and we sent it in to Michael Brower. He's working at, I think, Sony. He's working at Sony. And uh, less than a week later, I get this phone call. Uh, I'm looking for Dave Durr. And I go, and, and we're working out this little dumpy house, by the way, at the time. Um, my dog, my girl, and, uh, we were still doing some recording sessions. So it was a, it was a busy, noisy, messy place. Um, Michael says, um, oh, uh, Dave, I, I wanted to talk to you. And I'm, I don't know who he is at this point. He goes, this is Michael Brower. I go, oh. Okay, yeah, you, you work at Sony. John Patterson told me about you. And he goes, did you make the distressor? And I said, yeah. And he goes, man, I love this thing. He goes, I, I would like to ask you a favor if I could come out and visit you. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm thinking, you know, dirty dishes, uh, dog, you know. Uh, it, was just, it was just a mess. And I told him that. And he goes, I don't care. I just want to see where it's made and I want to meet you. And I go, really? I goes, I, I'm hoping this is for in a good way. <laughs> you know, you're not, <laughs> yeah, you're not right. going to say, you're not going to hold me, uh, take me to court or anything. He goes, no, no, I'm, I, I just really like this. And I go, oh, I'd be honored if you'd come out. And of course, uh, the internet was happening <laughs> at that point. So I get online and start looking. And there wasn't a lot about him online, but I did find out, oh my God, this guy's mixed some amazing records. So I'm very nervous when this, I think it was a, I think it was a Beamer pulled up to my little house next to my 72 Impala. Um, and um, Michael had a, had a lot of influence on us. And all that story was to get around to what we call the Brit mode. Um, Brit, you know, when you push all four buttons in on the 1176? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I couldn't do that in any way directly because the circuitry is very, very different. But, and I didn't even know what it was. 
honestly. Uh, I think I might have seen somebody do that, but didn't really take note of it. And he was uh, very enthusiastic if we could do that. So that was the next month or two. I said, let me see what I can do. I had 1176s there that would do it. And I, I had test sources put together. So again, responding to uh, a major person in the market, we added uh, the Brit mod. Brit mode, Brit mod is what we call it when we modify your unit. Um, and people really like that also. And again, we had to do it kind of a different way than the 1176 does it. But um, with my test sources and tools and I was able to get really close. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank Michael for pushing that on me. <laughs> well, okay, let's talk about software for a second. So it took you a long time to give in to, I guess, people asking you for a plug-in version. And now, of course, it's uh, Universal Audio that came out with a plug-in version of the Distressor and kind of a version of it with the Rouser, right? It's kind of a Distressor with more on it. Yes, it is. It definitely was to capture the distressor vibe. But then you have, you know, other, I'm not going to mention any names unless you want to, um, but there's, you know, probably four or five clones out there right now. Yeah, yeah. Distressor clones. And, of course, that's a serious form of flattery. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so when you did a rouser, did you do that in-house? Uh, we have a, a develop. yes. We have a, a guy that uh, actually isn't, working in our building, but we do all the testing here. He, he has a, his own development facility um, that we work with him very closely. And basically it was to our spec and we, we test the heck out of it along with the other engineer here. Um, so it is, we, we spec'd it out. Uh, it's not like a, we gave a distressor to somebody and said, copy this. Yeah. Um, we kind of started from a, a different method. Uh, and I knew, you know, with my test when it was, right but um the, I, the for me the goal was i saw these clones were had been as you said people were asking from 96 on when you know the year we put it out can you do a plug-in because waves was out there um doing doing stuff and so right off the bat i said you know i've learned a lot and there's i there's some things i would like to idealize there's some things that the stressor does but uh it's not quite uh, say predictable or not as variable and controllable. So one of the goals was again, not to, to just hand someone a distressor and say, copy this. It was to get, get all the vibe of it, but then to idealize a lot of it a lot more. Um, as an, ex as a quick example, um, there's a lot of examples, but the, the attack knob, the attack knob on the distressor, uh, you go to about, two or three, um, and you're at about a millisecond. We started at like 50 microseconds. But up to about three, you're still really fast, mm. really fast, you know, within the range of an 1176. And uh, with the arouser, and then, again, once you get up to five on the distressor, all of a sudden the attack jumps and goes up very quickly. Uh, it's not... It's not crazy unsmooth, but it's not as smooth as I wanted. So on the digital thing, I kept all the, the main points in about the same place, but there's little, uh, as they call, break points in pots that I got rid of. Yeah. So that there's much smoother. Um, and then, of course, I could let, let people read out in milliseconds and seconds in dB what the knob was at. And you can't do that with a real distressor either. Yeah, that's very handy. I uh, I love it, especially for me testing it. Yeah. Like, okay, I want a DB more to match this, this test I've already done. Type in a DB, enter, done. Instead of trying to go, nope, nope, <laughs> nope. You know, yeah, right. it right. becomes pretty quick and, and easy. Okay, for a company that's been around 20-some years, you don't have a lot of products. No. I get the feeling that for you, you're very deliberate about what you put out and very selective about what you put out as well. And it kind of has to pass the Dave Durr test before it goes anywhere. That being said, Fatso, where did that come from? Because that's another unique product. There's nothing like it, really. Well, you, you know, you just said about it had to pass my test. That one very nearly didn't. I had spent, um, by the way, there's actually, mm, I should know the amount. I think there's four or five products that we actually kind of designed and, 
haven't seen the light of day and, and may never. But the fact so was, uh, you know, this is now we're into the digital age, you know, 96, 97 dolls are actually working now reliably. Um, you know, it's, it's, we are indeed into the digital recording age. Um, and of course, one of the things that people all along were saying, oh, it's harsh and, and I want the smoothness of analog tape, you know, what, what can you do? So again, listening to, to people and, you know, reading and me using, uh, starting to use ADATs at one point, you realize that analog tape does, did help you. I, I had a big old Atari tape deck. Before that, a, a 3M 16 track, which was really analog. Yeah, yeah. I think it was great. What fun that was. Yeah. Um, but uh, so I'm starting to think, well, so let me try to quantify what makes the analog tape sound. Um, and so slowly I said, okay, well, first of all, you got to saturate a, lo- a little more, uh, a lot more than the distressor does. Um, you have to have, you, you know how the analog tape, will fold the high frequencies down. Like when you uh, put a snare in there, um, you're not going to get back what you put in on that front edge. Uh, and fortunately, it's a pleasant thing. It's musical. Yeah. You know, it collapses that front peak a lot. Um, so I said, uh, so I want soft clipping, but I need to have a high frequency effect, uh, which is on tape, it's the result of the bias frequency, which erases tape. Uh, being added with the high frequency in the audio. Mm-hmm. Um, so the audio actually becomes part of the biasing um, and self-races. And that's why you have that warmth, um, the high frequencies fold on analog tape. And that was tough. Um, I Honestly, I wish I could do it a different way now. But we basically created a dynamic filter for that, mm-hmm. high frequency dynamic filter. Um and then um, I'm like, and what about that low frequency bump? Um, and the transformers, a lot, all those old tape decks had transformers in them too. Um, and so the shortest path was to put a transformer in it. Uh, but we did it differently um, because transformers, as you know, can respond differently depending on where they're coming from and where they're going to. So what we did is we right in the middle of the circuit. We plopped a little teeny inexpensive transformer that was carefully chosen, but uh, we knew where it was coming from. We knew where it was going. Um, I adjusted those impedances, tuned it with caps and resistors and whatnot, and all of a sudden we got this nice low frequency bump when you enable the tranny. Tranny has a whole new meaning now, but um, <laughs> we called it tranny on there for transformer, and um, it, it did a, a really good job because it, we, we didn't try to simulate it. We actually put a transformer in there. Uh, and it does a low frequency thing um, that was I'm sure other people, a better engineer could probably do it without a transformer. But this transformer is only a few dollars and because we put it right in the middle of the circuit where it's very controllable it got that vibe. It's uh, actually a little bit of cross between um, the low frequency vibe of a um, tape deck, you know, where you've got that little bump. Yeah. I kind of put that bump in there. Um, again, I, I think it's a little above 100. Um, very small bump, like 1 dB, um, but it, you can hear it. Um, and lastly, because of all this, a lot of the circuitry was there, for instance, we did the saturation in the FATSO with FETs. I said, hmm, might just be able to use that as a VCA too. And so the next thing, we started putting a compressor in there. Um, so we ended up with four types of processing in there. Would you like to hear the story of how that almost didn't get to the market? Of course, yes. Lots of parts. Tremendous amounts of parts. Uh, it's got over a 1,000 parts. I should know that exact number in my head. Uh, but tons of parts, and that resulted in cost. Um, and I'm looking at this thing saying, first of all, what is it? You know, uh, if I'm going to try to sell it an expensive box, what, how do I define this in a sellable way? And honestly, we never did. <laughs> but um, we said as a tape simulator. But um, the we got to the point where I'm saying, okay, this is really expensive. This is going to be over twenty, you know, twenty five hundred dollars probably for me to make much money on it. Um, make it worth selling. Uh, very hard to to make. So I said, well, I'm going to beta test it anyway. 
And uh, by that time, we had a few major guys that I could actually say, you know, I'm going to send you this box. I wouldn't record through it right now, but would you mind just playing with it? And George Massenburg, big help. I had I was lucky to have met George in 1971. Um, uh, just a kid and a, a bass player kept telling me about this really good engineer over in Baltimore. And I was lucky. He drove me over there one night, and I meet George. George had hair down to his <laughs> butt at that time. And I remember he, he had just finished the session. Uh, we had time to arrival with the finish of the session. And he played back some of it. And I remember, you know, at that time, my, my experience in the studio was quite limited. Um, I'm sitting there going, wow, this is what studio is, you know. And, of course, George Bassenberg, that set a reference for me that has yet to be ex- exceeded. So George had gotten one of the first distressors, too. And really, him having that in his rack probably sold the first 500 <laughs> for me um so when i got the facts i was like let me call george and just because he's got the ears and and i think at this point he might have the he might be willing to take the time to to play with it you know um and brendan o'brien who had um also become kind of a distressor fan and at this point grunge was happening and of course what what could be more suited for grunge than an analog simulator you know in the digital world because grunge was all about you know this fat warm analog sound um those are the two main guys and again uh in my mind i literally had already said this isn't going to work this isn't going to be a product after two years of hell you know um because of the cost and because of how do i tell people what this is Anyway, thanks to George and Brendan, um, they both came back and said, oh, I really like this. I'd like to get another one, you know. And um, George, I said, George, you've helped so much with this dresser. You just you just keep that one. I said, it's kind of a prototype, but, you know, it's got all the stuff in there. And we'll see what happens. Um, and Brendan, I kind of said, Brendan, I, I really don't – we don't really have any more. Um, and he goes, well, how much would it cost to make one? And I said, well, you know, the, the metal, you probably know this, metal, ordering metal, custom metal works very expensive. It's not worth doing for one piece ever. Um, so I said, well, I said, I could probably do 10 at a minimum run, but it would cost this much money. Um, and he goes, well, I'll tell you what, I'll cover half of that. And I said, really? And so all of a sudden, I went, okay, I don't know what this thing is. I don't know how to sell it. But these two main guys, whom I have so much respect for, like it. So I've got to like it, you know. Yeah. And anyway, that was how that that ended up getting going from the trash. Uh, and we made a run of ten, then we made a run of like thirty and forty, um, and people kind of learned what it was. You know, they learned it was a tape emulator with compression in it, um, and we've sold thousands and thousands of those over the years. Very cool. Yeah, I'll tell you what, I thank George and Brendan. I thanked them in person a, a bunch of times, but I'd like to thank them publicly once again for uh, pushing that out the door for me. This has been so much fun, and there's so much more I want to ask you, but I don't want to take up too much of your time here. Hopefully we can resume this somewhere down the road here. I'm here for you really anytime. You know, it's su- such a low commitment. I don't have to fly anywhere. So. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you there. Okay, last question then, Dave. What is the best piece of business advice that maybe someone imparted to you or you learned along the way? I've gotten some really good advice over the years. Um, I just posted something on Facebook, which is a big part of it. Um, it was basically uh, if, if you want to – the first step in anything is getting started. Um, I'll you know, so many times you have the, all these ideas in your head and you say, oh, I could do that. I have a better idea than that. Um, and for years you think that, but you never actually sit down and start. So one of the first things is to just start. And if uh, I'll show you the uh, prototype of the distressor, you can see it's, it's a little PC board, you know, um, maybe three inches by five inches. 
And, and that was the start. It wasn't a big start. It wasn't a sellable product. So the first thing is to uh, get started and do baby steps. Number two, try to avoid partners. <laughs> I love as it. As sad as that is, um, try to avoid partners um, because – my experience has been there are good partners. There's definitely good partners out there, um, and they make that rule obsolete. But um, the thing that I, I had seen happen um, right around the, when I started selling the distressor was a lot of friends who, who were designing things, and they got financial partners and stuff. And the next thing, when they started making money, they didn't make money yeah. because the partner was – basically taking a huge taking that the fluff that made it worth doing off the top um so if you're the one that's going to be doing the design and actually creation try to fund it by yourself um try not to have silent partners they they're not ever silent um and lastly uh i'll just give you three examples of business advice jeff dakin who's become a very dear friend, who, who, who was from Delaware originally too, which is oh. where I'm from. Um, Jeff was, has been so good to me. He, he's given me a lot of advice, but the piece I'm going to pass on is about growth. And this, in a way, can hold you back. And it has, it has uh, in a way, you get in a comfort zone and, and you, to grow is very uncomfortable. Um, but his piece of advice was to read this article by Northcote Parkinson said, Dave, I want you to read this slice out of one of this guy, Northcote Parkinson's books. Jeff, I had a lot of respect for, and I didn't even think not to because he sent me the link. You know, um, Northcote Parkinson was a British general, I believe, or, or Navy admiral or something. Anyway, and his thing, his whole thing was different size of groups that produce. Um, and he would tell you that, you know, one person is very easy to manage, just yourself. Two people, you know, pretty easy. Uh, above about five people, you start having some trouble. And above about 20 people, it's a, a whole different ballgame. But the piece of advice was, and I've, we've seen people go out of business from this, don't grow your company until you have to grow your company. Mm. In other words, we just had a, a supplier go out of business. They were metal work, made metal work for many years out of a, kind of a small building, and it was very cramped and very you know, wall to wall with metal sheet, sheet metal and stuff like that. And they always turned a good profit. And what happened was they decided they wanted to grow and they got this giant 50,000 foot or something facility um, nearby, hired more people. There was a slight economic downturn. They had this huge nut that they never had before. And two years later, they're gone. So, um, I've always followed that, and uh, for instance, we worked out of that house I told you about with the the, the scary dog and this the dirty carpets and everything <laughs> until literally we were tripping over each other, and it was at that point we all said we need more room, and then we worked went to another house. <laughs> <laughs> we moved into another house that was bigger, um, and worked out of there for over a year until we were tripping over each other. Um, and then we bought a factory uh, building, and um, we're now starting to trip over here. And I'm thinking about making the next move. So, but those would be my three pieces of advice: one, no partners; two, basically grow slowly; and three, uh, grow only when you absolutely have to grow. Be very careful. You can find out more about David Empirical Labs at EmpiricalLabs.com, E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-L-A-B-S, Empirical Labs, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at BobbyOInnerCircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to BobbyOsinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to BobbyOInnerCircle.com, or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, and Google Podcasts. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOInnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.